If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. I love how our passage begins this morning with a question from one of my personal favorite disciples, Peter. Uh, Matthew 18, 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. I love this question because it shows me just how much the people of their time are like the people of ours. Prior to Peter asking Jesus this question in verse 21, Jesus had just finished telling the disciples what steps should be taken when another believer sins against them. This was in verses 15 through 20. So Peter naturally wants to know, well, how many times should I let someone do me wrong before I can be done with them, Lord? I would imagine most of us in this room have at some point asked that question in our lives. Now, we probably would expect a question like this from Peter because we know Peter's a bit of a wild card, right? Uh, Peter was probably thinking, now, Jesus, say we're at the Oscars and a man walks up on this. I'm anyway, 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 I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. All right. So some rabbis during Jesus's time had actually tried to create a fixed amount of times you had to allow someone to offend you before you could cut them off. The rabbis who had done this did so based on a poor interpretation of Amos 1.3 and Amos 2.1. So Amos 1.3 says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. And then Amos 2.1 says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. Essentially, they would try to draw the line at the fourth offense. They wanted to find a way to limit how much mercy they needed to extend to people who had sinned against them. And if we're honest, we do the same thing. This morning, it's my hope that the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 will shatter our shallow notions of what true forgiveness is and replace it with a biblical God-honoring one. So if you're at the text, we're going to read through that and then we're going to pray. So Matthew, starting at verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported 
to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Lord Jesus, we come to you humbly this morning asking, Father, that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would take my meager preparation, Father, and use it for your glory. Would you speak the truth of forgiveness to us this morning? Lord Jesus, let hearts be touched and pricked with the truth of these scriptures. In Jesus' name. All right. I'm sure many of us remember the tragic story of the Charleston Church Massacre in 2015, where at the time, 21-year-old Dylan Roof entered a South Carolina church and murdered nine parishioners. The following are quotes pulled from a 2015 CNN article written by Ray Sanchez and Ed Payne. Roof spent about an hour at the historic African-American church before the massacre, attending the prayer meeting with his eventual victims. Charleston Police Chief Greg Mullen said, Witnesses told investigators the gunman stood up and said he was there to shoot black people. A law enforcement official said, He answered one man's plea to stop by shooting him, said Sylvia Johnson, a cousin of the church's slain pastor who was talked about to a survivor. No, you've raped our women and you are taking over the country, he said, according to Johnson. I have to do what I have to do. All the victims were shot multiple times, according to Ruth's arrest warrant. Prior to leaving the Bible study room, he stood over a witness and uttered a racially inflammatory statement, the warrant said. Now I have another piece that I want to read for you. And I want you to hear this not with racially charged ears, because that's not the point whatsoever. The following is from a Washington Post article written by Matt Zapotsky from January 4th of 2017. Charleston, South Carolina, six weeks after he shot and killed nine people at a Charleston church, Dylan Roof lamented in a jailhouse journal that he could no longer go to the movies or eat good food. But he still felt the massacre was worth it because of what he perceived as the wrongs perpetrated by the black community. I would like to make it crystal clear. This is the words of Roof. I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did, Roof wrote. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. Hmm. In light of all of this, you would probably think that anybody that was connected to this event would have no room or capacity for forgiveness here. They would be completely devoid of forgiveness, you would think, as tragic as this is. But let me read a couple of quotes from people closely connected to this tragedy. These words were spoken on the day that Dylan Roof was sentenced to the death penalty. Felicia Sanders, the mother of one of the nine victims killed by Dylan Roof in a Charleston church, told Roof, this morning at an emotional sentencing hearing, I forgive you. That's the easiest thing I had to do. But you don't want to help somebody who don't want to help themselves, she told her son's killer. According to ABC affiliate, may God have mercy on your soul, the lady says. Another quote, I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. 
a daughter of Ethel Land said, and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you and I forgive you. Felicia Sanders, the mother of victim Tawanza Sanders said that every fiber in my body hurts and I will never be the same. As we said in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, she said of Ruth's time at the church before the massacre, but may God have mercy on your soul. Mm. Did you hear what she said? She said, every fiber in my body hurts and I will never be the same. Let me make this clear this morning before we go any further. What Jesus is talking about here is not some cheap grace that doesn't hold people accountable for hurting you. Forgiveness is available to everyone, but does not remove the consequences for one's actions. There are things in this world that people can do to us that may remain with us until we go home to glory. But vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. No injustice goes forever unpunished because we serve a holy and just God. What happens often is that we want to do God's job. And we might even have the audacity to imagine we could manage our lives better than he can. But as sinful humans, we aren't as good as justice as we are at revenge. Or more passively aggressive, we are better at cold-hearted indifference than we are at grace-driven forgiveness. I do realize the Dylan Roof story could be considered a radical and, in my opinion, a supernatural example of forgiveness. However... I believe based on the text today that Jesus would say this is not a radical response, but the appropriate response for a believer. What I am not saying is that if you have been a victim of a traumatic event, that you need to be able to produce this radical type of forgiveness in your own strength. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that in submission to Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit, you can forgive any offense in this supernatural type of way. The title of this sermon is, Are Your Accounts Settled? There are three things we'll look at this morning. First, every sin we commit is a debt to God. Second, God keeps an account of our sin debts, which will require payment. And third, the debt of sin is extremely costly, and some accounts are in greater deficit than others. Let's look at Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The first thing I find striking about Peter's question is the fact that he immediately took into account that he had to forgive his brother. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus had already taught the disciples this lesson on forgiveness. In verse 14 of Matthew 6, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And verse 15 says, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So this is not a new foreign concept to them. Peter understood that not only was he not supposed to bear a grudge against his brother or seek revenge, but he ultimately was to forget the injury. Secondly, Jesus said in Luke 17, 4, and if he sins against you seven times in the day, And turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. But Peter is asking the question more from the perspective of the rabbis that I mentioned earlier in the introduction. Who were set on defining the law 
defining the law, the measure of grace a person had to extend to someone who offended them. Essentially, Peter says in verse 21, as many as seven times, he's saying seven times in his entire life. He's like, Jesus, if a brother hurt me or abused me seven times throughout my whole life, could I cut him off after that? One commentator believes Peter may have been thinking about Proverbs 24, 16 when he said that. For the righteous fall seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Whatever Peter was thinking, Peter was wrong, and we're going to see that. Verse 22 says, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Whoa. Jesus is like, Peter, just stop it. Just stop it. I never intended for forgiveness to have any boundaries at all. Some might even be tempted to take the 77 times statement literally, but Jesus is actually using what's called hyperbole here. A hyperbole is a shocking statement used to get someone's attention. Like when Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. What Jesus is telling Peter here and effectively us this morning is stop keeping count of the wrongs against you. There's something very sinister about keeping count of every wrong someone has done to us. Why? Because that's God's job. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He is the righteous judge. When we attempt to exact payment from people for the sins against us, we are in danger of stepping into God's throne. Imagine if God gave you the ability today to punish the people who have hurt you throughout your life without any repercussion for the way that you handled that. We've seen something like this scenario played out in just about every superhero movie that's ever been created. Think about it. Some small guy or nerdy guy or nerdy small guy is bullied. And because of the abuse, right, he grows up while the entire time harboring feelings of hate and resentment toward the bully. Then one day something amazing happens and all of a sudden this small nerdy guy becomes this handsome superhuman guy that can throw a bus at you, right? (laughs) What we typically see happen at this point in the story is that the hero is going to get some payback. And we all cheer, right? Yeah, he's got the guy, he got the bully, right? But sometimes, though, the hero becomes the villain. And what we once cheered for, now we look on in horror as they sometimes destroy whole cities or even planets, right? What's my point? Because of our sin nature, We are incapable of handing out appropriate punishment for offenses. And we also, in many cases, lack mercy. The Bible tells us that God multiplies his pardons and we should do the same thing. Look at how God dealt with Israel in the following verses. Psalm 78, 38. I'm going to read Psalm 78, 38 through 40. Yet he, being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. You see, we lack this ability. How many times have you actually yourself read that account of the children of Israel and you go, If I were God, I'd have been done with them. Have you ever done that? I think I've done it a few times. Like, how stupid can they be? That's that's what we're thinking as we read it a lot of times. Because they've got 
God's presence with them. So it's kind of shocking that they don't get it, right? Matthew 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. The king in this parable represents God. And the servant represents a repentant sinner who harbors unforgiveness against others. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I find this interesting. The verse says that the man who owed the money was brought into the king's presence. In other words, he didn't come to the king on his own to settle up. This suggests that the most likely scenario is a picture of someone doing some accounting and suddenly discovers that this dude owes the king a hundred million dollars in today's money. That is literally how that translates from then to now. That number of talents is a hundred million dollars in today's money. This makes sense to me because you best believe if you owe me a hundred million dollars, You won't have to come see me. I'm coming to find you. If you owe me $100, I'm going to at least bug you to death until you pay me. (laughs) So imagine $100 Anyway, I digress. But in all seriousness, Jesus is painting a vivid picture of how we stand utterly bankrupt before God because of the debt of sin is so great that you could never pay it. Because of man's original sin in Genesis... Every man, woman, and child is born into this world under the curse of sin. We are literally born indebted to God. I know the thought of your cute, cuddly little baby being a sinner is difficult to comprehend sometimes. But just give it a few years. They'll produce sin all on their own that you never had to teach them how to produce. The truth is... I've heard it one, one way by a, a pastor that I, I love to listen to. Uh, he said, have you ever seen a baby playing with a toy and you take that toy away from the baby and the baby gets so angry? He said, imagine if that baby had the power to kill you, the strength of an adult. That baby would probably murder you in that moment over that little nookie because that's our sin nature. All right. So what's the point of that? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory, right? Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Because the debt was so great and the servant was unable to pay, the king decreed that the man and his entire family be sold into slavery. So before the apostolic period, this would have been exactly what would be prescribed to someone who could not pay their debts. There are multiple examples throughout the Old Testament, and I'm not going to read them now, but if you want to write down these references, feel free. Exodus 22.3, Exodus 25.39, and 2 Kings 4.1. Now, during the apostolic period, Jewish law no longer allowed debtors to be sold into slavery. So as we think about this parable, we should have the imperial Roman court in mind. All that is taking place here is happening according to Roman law. Under Roman law, a creditor was allowed to bring a debtor by force before the authorities. What's the spiritual implication here? 
We might say having someone's entire family sold into slavery to cover any amount of debt is cruel and unusual punishment. But the king was well within his rights to exact this hefty payment. Just as it is with God, the true king, our God king is just. Meaning God's just nature demands that payment be made for every sin that you have committed against him. Why? Because who you sin against matters. What do I mean? Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who to fear. God is well within his rights to request payment for your sin debt at any moment. If anyone is hearing this today who hasn't trusted in Jesus for salvation, I want you to know that your account is not settled this morning. And I urge you to ask Jesus to settle your debt before you have to pay it yourself. Matthew 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Interesting. The servant had to know this day was coming, right? He had to know a long time ago that one day he was going to get dragged before the king for a hundred million dollars. Basically, the servant was walking around completely unbothered with the fact that he owed the king a hundred million dollars until the authorities grabbed him and brought him before the courts. He was living like he was debt free. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I know this doesn't seem like it, but this is pride right here, y'all. This is pride right here. What do I mean? This man knew full well he didn't have no money to pay a hundred million dollars. So the audacity to say, have patience with me, give me more time. If he had a hundred years, he wouldn't be able to pay a hundred million dollars. That was pride. He said, just give me some time to take care of it. I'm not surprised though. Isn't that what we do? How many times have you gone on in sin with no thought about it until someone who loves you tells you about yourself? Or maybe even the police had to put you on timeout before you realized it was time to beg for mercy. We are naturally wired this way, or should I say sinfully wired this way. It's usually when we feel the squeeze from our circumstances, from our sinful lives, that we are willing to seek God to do something about it. Yet, as I mentioned before, the servant was shocked into reality enough to realize he should fall on his knees and plead for mercy, but he still wasn't humble enough to admit his complete and utter inability to pay his debt. When you are brought to the place where you are truly, you truly recognize how bankrupt you stand before God, and that you have a notice on your soul that reads past due, that's the place where you get to see God work. In this place of brokenness and humility, you are now in a position to receive the free gift of Jesus Christ as payment for your sin debt in full. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master is moved with compassion for the servant and completely dismisses the debt. The master knows that even after selling the man, his family, 
all of his possessions, the debt still wouldn't be satisfied. So instead of giving the servant justice, the master chose to show mercy. The master in this verse, of course, represents God. And this is what God has done for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Even now, in this very moment, you can turn to Jesus. Romans 10, 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Thank you, Jesus, for such a powerful yet simple message. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Mm, 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 mm. Isn't that something? The man who was just forgiven a debt of a hundred million dollars immediately finds himself choking out a man who owed him the equivalent of $7,000 today. hundred million, 7,000. Verse 29 So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Wow. The servant who the king forgave such a great debt is given what I would call a divine opportunity opportunity to do unto others, right? A man who was shown mercy and compassion far beyond anything anyone could ever imagine looks upon a man guilty of the same sin as his. And he decides his fellow servant is not worthy of mercy, but should instead be punished to the fullest extent of the law. The man who escaped prison by the skin of his teeth is so ready and willing to send another man there. Here's what's even more shocking. The man he decided to choke for the $7,000 was a man that was in the same position in life as he was. He said, your fellow servant. So this man wasn't even his superior The guy that was being choked by this man, that wasn't even a superior to him. But the guy being choked had the type of humility that you need, right? He humbled himself even before a man that wasn't the master because he realized that he owed a debt and he humbled himself. That was the right posture. It stands in stark contrast to the man forcibly demanding his rights. Verse 30, he refused and went Oh, I don't want that. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How quickly we forget our own deep need of mercy and forgiveness. When we lose sight of how great a debt we have been forgiven as Christians, we can become hard and unforgiving towards others. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. The king didn't call him wicked servant because he owed him a hundred million dollars. He actually looked at him with pity at that time. But now he's got a beef with him. The wicked servant is showing here that he never truly appreciated what the king did for him. He only feared the punishment he deserved. Verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You and I do the same thing 
when we stand in condemnation of our brother or sister for offenses they've committed against us, when our own offenses before a holy and righteous God are so numerous that a library could not hold the offenses. God extends new mercies to you and me every day. Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a heavy verse because it means what it plainly says. It is our nature to take a verse like this and and turn it upside down until we find a loophole to absolve ourselves um, from ever having to really forgive, right? Maybe even to forgive someone who we would call unforgivable by the nature of their offenses against us. Let me be clear. This parable is in no way teaching us that God forgives our sins and then takes back his forgiveness if we choose not to forgive our brothers or sisters in Christ. That needs to be said. What this parable is communicating, however, is that a born-again believer who chooses not to forgive is living in willful sin and needs to repent. That's what it is communicating. Jesus says, forgive your brother from your heart. He's saying the forgiveness must be real, sincere, and not just fake or for show. Jesus is saying not only must you forgive and not seek revenge, but you also can't be running around with a heart full of bitterness and resentment, waiting for an opportunity to let somebody have it. What Jesus asks of us always goes deeper than the surface. It's heart deep. For example, what did Jesus say about anger? He said to hate in your heart towards someone is equal to murder. God's standard is so high that no one can escape it. You can play games with people, but you can't play games with God. God looks down and he can see straight through the top of your head as if your head was glass. There's nothing hidden from him. The following is a quote from the pulpit Bible commentary. I believe this really brings this point home for us. The unloving cannot abide in Christ who is love. The hard-hearted and unmerciful cannot continue in union with him who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. The unforgiving cannot dare to use the prayer which the Lord himself has taught us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There is no mercy for the merciless. We may repeat again and again the words of prayer, Lord, have mercy upon us. But countless repetitions will not win mercy for those who have not mercy in their hearts. And oh, we shall need mercy in the great day. Then let us be merciful now. Be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Unforgiveness is incompatible with the gospel. It's incompatible with a person that walks around proclaiming to be a child of the king. We must forgive. His word tells us, it commands us that we must forgive. I want to have a couple gentlemen come up to the stage and uh, help me with a little something. I've never done an object lesson before, but as I was preparing this, the Lord just really gave me a clear, a clearer picture, I believe, of, 
a way to show this. And so this box is the first bank of unforgiveness. <laughs> this box is the first bank of God. As you can see, both boxes are pretty full. The box that belongs to God is full because everybody in the entire world owes him a debt. Everyone's sin in the entire world creates a debt with God that must be paid. And there's only one way for that debt to be paid. This box, the first bank of unforgiveness, this box is the box full of all of the times you didn't let it go. All of the offenses that you're keeping track of. All of the stuff that you need to give to Jesus. I'll never forgive you for not being there for me when I was hurting. I'll never forgive you for lying to me. I'll never forgive you for hitting me. I'll never forgive you for how you treated my mom. I'll never forgive you for calling me ugly. I'll never forgive you for calling me fat. I'll never forgive you for stealing from me. This box is getting more full. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, Jesus took all of the debt you owed him and he emptied it out. And Jesus said, paid in full, you are forgiven. You are free. You can go. If Jesus did this for you, if you're a believer and Jesus emptied out your box and settled your account, how can you keep this box? Shouldn't we follow the example of our Savior? Shouldn't I empty out my box too? If there's anybody here this morning who hasn't trusted Christ, I'm going to ask our choir to come now. If you haven't trusted Christ, I'm going to stand down here during our invitation song. And, and this time will be for those who want to accept Christ or those who would like to join our church. But we're going to have a, a, another time of prayer after the service where if you need to do some business with this issue, I would suggest that you do it. I would suggest that you leave your gift at the altar until you get it right with your brother or sister. Because we're not going to experience true freedom until we have that forgiveness.